0: Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about modern baseball's problems. And I think the heart of it is that, to me, bat and ball sports are two-dimensional. It really is a case of who scores the most runs wins. Whereby, if you compare it with, let's say, the NFL and with soccer, they're three-dimensional. Sports, you have tactics. So, I suppose the best metaphor would really be that bat and ball s- sports are foot soldiers in the battle. It is a simple case, you're there in front of you, you're fighting for your life. It is win or die. And really, those type of situations it's who has the better training, who has the better equipment, who's more efficient. It's that kind of situation whereby, for me, if you look again, you know. Three dimensional sports like football and American football, you're the general. You're above the fray. You have tactics. You have options. You can choose the battlefield. You know where do you deploy your infantry? How much cavalry? You know exactly how you fight the battle. You know you have schools of thought. You can use the West Coast offense. You know you can use ticky tacky, the German school of pressing, Mourinho ball. You have so many different options with which to choose how you are going to win the battle whereby with bat and ball sports it's simply a case of who has the best. You know, if you take the Australian cricket team that was dominant throughout the 90s and the early 2000s, really in many ways they're like the new model army. You know, they were, you know, they trained harder. Yeah, you know, they used a baseball coach to improve their fielding, which no other cricket team was doing at that time period. But at the end of the day, what you had was you had Shane Warne, who's one of the greatest spinners of all time. You had Glenn McGraw, one of the greatest fast bowlers of all time. You had several fantastic batsmen, all at the same time. Collectively, they were just a fantastic cricket team who made the most of their talents. You know, just in the same way that you know the nineteen twenty seven Yankees, Murderers' Row, they were just great ball players. In neither case was there really much tactical genius. They just had fantastic players, and fantastic players when put together will do great things. You know to sort of expand upon it. If you had the greatest baseball manager of all time, the greatest tactician, but you gave them a starting you know a pitching staff with everyone who had an ERA over five. You know, there's no way that you can hide that. There's no way that you can jimmy that around. If they're just not going to strike people out, if they're going to give up lots of home runs and lots of runs, lots of base runners, lots of walks, there's really nothing that you can do to hide that. Really, uh, you're not going to end up beating a team which has you know a pitching staff where everyone's ERA is between two and three. You know, it's just yeah, there's just no way around it. Whereby if you take you know, let's say Mourinho. When Inter Milan played, you know that the great Barcelona team, and really, you know, Inter Milan went down to ten men, but they stuck a, you know, the ten men behind the ball, and they held out. You don't have that option in cricket or in baseball. You can't play for a draw. It is who scores the most runs. And if you take, you know, the NFL, you always had the the tradition. The maxim was is that the pro game was superior to college ball. Because really, you know, although NFL was reliant on college ball to basically provide the talent, the future talent, the idea was that there was a physical superiority. There was a stronger pace of play. So for quarterbacks, you know, they were rewarded when they were pocket passes. You know, that was basically you had to have timing, accuracy, bravery, quickness of thought. You needed to be able to learn and execute the playbook. Whereby, in the college game... Because players weren't as strong, teams weren't as strong, you know, and you know, generally speaking, the average player had less of a sort of footballing IQ. You had to resort to things like the spread offerings, the quarterback as a runner. Because uh, they were simpler and easy to execute, but they were unviable. They wouldn't work. If you tried to do that in the pros, you would get destroyed. Only the best, you know, quarterbacks coming out of college would be able to, and they were the ones who have, you know, the Peyton Manning's, those type of, you know, with that IQ, with that skill set. And yet, really, as we've, you know, across all sports, and specifically team sports, you've had a situation where strength and conditioning has just changed. We have so much more information, so much more technology, so much more ways in which we can basically train our bodies. So suddenly, you know, athletes at high school and college were just so much better and as a result you know the college concepts you know offensive concepts became viable so it, you know the nfl suddenly started to, to borrow very liberally from college you know again the spread offense the, you know the concept of using the best athlete at quarterback you know with you know lamar jackson and you know patrick mahomes and suddenly that's just reimagined the quarterback position and which then has meant things like the line you know linebackers in the NFL have changed because the players they're matching up against. It's not, you know, lots of running. You you will have the quarterbackers running, but they're not just. Yeah, there's a sense that, you know, the size of linebacker. You don't have to be necessarily as big because you have to be faster because the players that you are coming up against you, know, you need side to you know, side speed rather than straight line speed it's that kind of principles that have suddenly you know completely changed the way how you know offensive football has been played you know you had a situation where you know you had you know rule changes but for the most part you have passing and an explosion of passing and now you have so many different options and different styles it almost creates really a sort of a chicken in the egg argument was it a case that the better athletes led to, you know, more creative tactics, or was it more creative, you know, offensive theories, you know, suddenly were able to make better use of the, you know, the improved athletes? You know, really another question you could ask is, you know, to what extent did the modern college draft pick force the NFL to reform? In other words, suddenly you had all of these different Sized athletes, you know, playing different positions. So, in other words, a lot of the, a lot of the standard thought processes. In other words, what, how big you had to be, how what size you, what sort of sprint speed you had to have to play specific positions. Suddenly, you know, effectively changed overnight. So, bringing this back to really sort of bat and ball sports. Well, well the key question then is, how can two dimensional sports, bat and ball sports, innovate? And I suppose if you take cricket and baseball, which are really covers cousin sports, they have you know similarities in development and similarities in issues. Really, what you've had is that cricket's innovations have been structural and baseball's innovations have been really efficiency-based. And what that comes down to is really geometry. Cricket is a 360-degree sport. So, in other words, you have... A bowler that bowls to a batsman in the crease you know, the, the wicket which is basically a strip of ground in the middle of the of a circular field and you can score 360 which you can score in front you can score behind to side and that's really why cricket is effectively a high scoring sport so you're trying to get to 300, 400, whereby baseball is more of a sort of a 90-degree sport. In other words, you have the foul lines. You Effectively, you only have a, a small amount of room to actually score. So it has to be effectively left field, centre, right. There's, you know, everything else is foul. Everything behind you is foul. So it's a far less high-scoring game. So in other words, a high-scoring baseball game is 10-9. A low-scoring cricket game is 150 plays 175. And so cricket, as a result, is harder to analyse statistically. There's so many more variables. It's so much easier to score, and therefore, what is a league-average cricket player, it is far more difficult to pin down. And so... Because it's also based on international competition. So in other words, the absolute peak of cricket is international cricket. It's nation plays nation. And it's therefore a much more looser affiliation. So really, the only way to change the sport wasn't going to be... Because different countries did it in different ways. So in other words, what works in England won't work in India. Wouldn't necessarily work in New Zealand. Wouldn't work in the Caribbean for the West Indies. So what you had is the origin was origin of international cricket was test matches so that is basically you know, five six day games win lose or draw and by the time you reach the 1970s you have the concept of the one day international so in other words you know with increasing television with increasing media there was the sense that people's lives they weren't really able to commit to five days watching something straight because jobs so really the one day international was how can you basically fit a cricket game into effectively one day so you have you know 50 overs one team bats scores the other team then has to score one more run which then leads into sort of t20 which was an even shorter version which was how can you fit it into an evening and then you had you know it was world cups And so you have different formats, different tournaments, you have domestic, you have the Indian Premier League, which was massive, it's just absolutely huge, you know, hundreds of millions of people watching, you know, every single game, you have the Big Bash in Australia, the T20 Blast in the UK, and then you have, you know, international tournaments, World Cups, international champions, trophies. But up until really the late 90s, there was no, with test matches, which is... Every cricket fan, every proper cricket fan, considers that the pinnacle of the sport. It's the one where you need the most amount of skill, it's the biggest challenge. But there was no championship, there was no World Series, no Super Bowl, there was no real rankings. It was almost really the decision of who was the best team was really, you know, as much as you can get in professional sports, a romantic, poetic decision. It was really. What do you think is the best cricket team? Is it the one that plays the most pleasing form of cricket, or is it the team that wins the most? There was no relegation, really. There was limited to no structure until really you get the ICC, you know, the international cricket governing body. But that wasn't really. That was only started to really make an impact in the nineties. So really, with test matches, once you were awarded test status, it was not revoked. The only team that have really ever been close to revocation was Zimbabwe, and that was because they were political pariahs and that political instability really damaged their cricketing infrastructure. Whereby there's similarities with baseball. In other words, you know, baseball was never contracted. It's only ever expanded. You know, they did threaten, you know, in the mid-90s at that time when you'd had the nightmare of the cancelled World Series but that was a threat it wasn't actually ever done yet you might move a franchise but you don't lose a franchise and any of the kind of changes have been commercial you know the dh you know, designated hitter in the al that was because attendances were dropping in american league cities you now it's broadly commercial yes the idea of you know expanded playoffs the wild card But that was a way to get more games, more money, and more interest into the sport. Because baseball, with its geometry, you know, being fairly narrow in comparison with cricket, it's easier to have you know do things like batting average, ER ERA, fielding percentage, and also there's limited tactical changes. You've only got x number, x amount of space to cover. You still need a catcher, you need a pitcher, you need a first baseman. And it's so much easier to rate individual players. And because you had, you know, the structure was, you had MLB as primacy. It was the dominant force. It was highly structured. You had a major league, a minor league. You have a World Series. There is no relegation. So really, any kind of innovation was coming down from the clubs themselves and the players. You know, you have the you know, dead ball situation where, again, it was really in many ways a commercial decision. It was when people, when you got more attendance from people enjoying home runs, then naturally having new fresh balls instead of using the same one became an obvious one. When you had people like Babe Ruth starting to hit home runs, but really, you know. A lot of the innovation comes from like Branch Ricky with the creation of the farm system using integration. You have the Moneyball A's with Sandy Alderson to begin with, Billy Bean building on that and really the sabermetric revolution and the launch angle. That's the sport as a whole. That is Most of the clubs jumping on top of it, some quicker than others, some early adapters, but generally everyone understanding that that is a way of better understanding the sport. The players thinking, well, how is the best way of, you know, if there's been a rise in pitcher velocity, what can hitters do? Okay, strikeouts are therefore inevitable, but if you hit the ball hard enough and far enough and at the right angle, you can get enough runs to really compensate for any strikeouts. And what you have really then is a situation where cricket has multiple formats. So you have T20 where it's you know, effectively a three, four hour game and it's very quick paced. It's very much you score as many runs as you can. And so there's an amount of innovation in that. So the skill sets that you would need to be successful at T20 is to have, be able to hit from the first moment you get it. You don't have the ability to get your eye in you can't spend 10 15 minutes sort of knocking the ball around getting yourself into some kind of form you have to start hitting straight away whereby if you take test cricket which is five days you do have 10 15 20 minutes where actually the skill sets you do need to have a defensive technique you don't need to have a defensive technique in t20 in 50 over cricket it's entirely you know the, the captain the strength of your lineup There's so many different skill sets, which allows a whole range of cricket players. They're all playing the same sport. Still bat, ball, wickets, stumps, boundary rope. It's still the same stadiums they're playing at, but it's all different skill sets. You can have Nottinghamshire in T20. Their ground is fairly lopsided. So what they decided to do was, we'll just pack our team full of big hitters They can't really feel very well, but we will always back ourselves that more often than not, if the oppo get 200 because we don't feel very well, we'll be able to out hit them and hit 210, 220. You have a situation where you can have Sir Alistair Cook, who's an opening batsman, doesn't hit many sixes. And then Kevin Peterson, who was, you know, able to play in all three formats equally well, but, you know, at the back end of his career was, you know, hitting sixes and playing a lot of T20. You can have someone like, you know, this Sri Lankan spinner, Rangana Harath, who was five foot five, late 30s, wasn't, you know, in, if you looked at him, you wouldn't have thought this was a fantastic athlete, who was a fantastic, you know, spinner. And then you can have Shurabib Akhtar, on the other hand, the Pakistani fast bowler, who was bowling at 100 miles an hour. Or Jimmy Anderson, who works in the early 80s, who uses, you know, movement rather than, you know, straight velocity. And because you have all of these different variables, you know, because you have hard pitches in the Caribbean, Australia and New Zealand, you know, due to the heat, due to you know all different, you know, the, the soil you have, you know, that benefits fast bowlers. Whereby in England, because it's far more mild, because it's a bit more wetter, you know, the pitches have lots more movement so that basically you don't necessarily need to be bowling at 95 miles an hour in asia you have hot humid slow dusty turning pitches and so there's all these different options and skill sets you can basically be a test match specialist you can be a t20 specialist you can basically you know be better at one day international or you can have three format players and so there's all these different Body types, all these different playing types, skill sets, and so cricket is really, and there's so much more tactics involved. You know, how do you balance the starting eleven? Do you just have more batsmen? Do you have all-rounders? Do you have more bowlers? How do you balance everything out? And there's so, and it allows so much greater opportune freedom and opportunities for all professionals to succeed. And the real question is, is that does baseball offer you that? You know, the Loogie, the left-handed, you know, one out guy has been legislated out. The crafty lefty starter, or the pure starter that you know relies on pinpoint command rather than, you know, excess velocity. The high average pure hitter. Yeah, you know, the lightning fast shortstop who's a defensive genius but can't really hit his own weight. You you have a limited amount of stolen bases, you know, limited amount of triples. And there's really a limited chance for you know, baseball players to really show off the full extent of their you know, athletic genius. You, know, you have more pitching changes, less balls in play, less action. You know, starters aren't as important as they used to be. The games are much more sort of longer. And so really, what it comes down to is that cricket is a vibrant sport in terms of the balance between formats. And, you know, the kaleidoscope of different skill sets and players, all of which can flourish. But the problem is, is that it's a structurally weak sport. In other words, you know, one day internationals and T20 cricket is not acting as a gateway to get fan, you know, new fans engaged with test match cricket. So cricket test match cricket isn't shown in its best light. They've only just come up with the idea of the World Test Championship. The first time they'd ever really worked out is how can we actually, you know, have a final of some sort to decide who is the best Test match team, and yet, you know, due to COVID, a lot of it has been truncated, and already some of the members of the IC, the sort of upper echelons, are criticising it before it's even started. It'd be literally like the equivalency of someone criticising the Super Bowl two days before Super Bowl one, it's you have to give it some chance. It's not going to be perfect straight out the bat, especially under the circumstances. And that's the thing. It's a con- crowded, confusing sporting calendar. There's a lack of narrative. So the problem is, is that you have the, have the haves, the rich countries, you know, India, England, Australia, who are able to basically subsidise Test Match Cricket, and then you have the have nots who aren't playing as much test cricket, aren't having as much success, and there's a lack of crowds, there's a lack of TV viewership. And so really, you know, both cricket and baseball to me are wonderful, amazing sports. But really cricket is suffering because it is fragmented. You know, Indian cricket fans generally tend to watch the IPL, they're watching less, you know, they're less not as interested in what other countries are doing. And that's not, you know, a criticism of Indian fans, that's just a fact, is that the sport as a whole holistically needs a a sort of viable superstructure, a way that you can actually best show test match cricket, you know, one day, T20, and make it actually work. Because you have all of this talent, all these different strands that are all fantastic in their own way, but they're not joined together. They're all going off in their own different ways. So what baseball really needs is that it has this vibrant structure you have the World Series you have the playoffs you have the divisions you know, the differences between you know minor league major league you you have a whole system that has worked for an extended period of time that is popular at home and abroad baseball is a growing sport but really what you're having is is that I think there was a sense that when people talk about where baseball currently sits, is that the sabermetric revolution was effectively an unintended consequence. No one expected that this was going to happen, that you were going to get a situation where the game is played at its most efficient. We have the most amount of information. You, You probably have more information on an average baseball game than virtually any other major team sport you know, how fast they run, you know, what was the accuracy of the route they ran, you know, what was the percentage of the catch being made, you know, how brilliant are they on two strikes in the seventh inning or less in a game, tied game. You have all of that information, all, you know, available, you know, who, you know, you can compare someone from 1919 you can compare the Boston Red Sox 1919 shortstop with the Boston Red Sox shortstop of 2019 and make an yeah you know, be able to compare and that's just an amazing thing but whether that has in any way improved the game it is questionable you know the sabermetric revolution was an inevitability you know the game itself at the moment you know, although it is vibrant in terms of its structure, the, the the game itself has a sluggish mechanical style of play. And it's really an overly cor- complex corporatist syntax. In other words, the way how we talk about baseball, it is all about, you know, wins above replacement. Is that player better than the, the average AAA ball player? <laughs> or, you know, in what way, you know, it, oh... This guy's turned thirty-two, and we now know that his, you know, average sprint has gone from the eighty-third percentile to the fortieth percentile, and as a result, you know, his batting average next season is likely to drop by twenty-five points. You know, a lot of the it becomes very mathematical. There are spreadsheets involved. You have to understand what all the different acronyms means, and in some ways you squeeze the joy and the narrative out of the game. You know, you're leaving an increasingly large amount of casual fans disenchanted, almost in a way disenfranchised, because they just you don't have the ability to have to you know, do you read all of this information? How do you take all of this information in when you used to be able to basically just look on the back of a baseball card and know that if the person had an ERA of three, they were good, if they had an ERA of five, they were bad. If they were a three hundred hitter they were good. If they were hitting two twenty, they weren't as good. Now suddenly you can have a two twenty hitter, but if they hit 40 home runs, if they're on base percentage is good, then actually they're quite valuable, but if they try put in too many, you know double plays then you lose minus 25 runs off there and it becomes very difficult and it's less likely that you're going to be as interested. You know, <clears throat> you know I've said cricket needs baseball structure while baseball desperately needs the freedoms and vitalities that cricket offers to its professional players to display their gifts and their abilities. And in some ways, the problem is, is that baseball's cultural role in American history, being the first major professional sport and being America's sport, means that you have a situation where the structure of the league and the format of the sport has largely stayed the same. You know, there's always, when any kind of change, there's always a almost reflective, you know, outrage you can't change this you can't change it the idea is is that somehow that if there was someone from 1920 turning up today and watched a baseball game they should basically still be able to follow and understand and it should look the same so you have 90 feet between the bases you have the american league the national league 60 feet six inches you know between you know the home plate and the pitcher's mound And in many ways, that is the charm of the sport. But as a result, your options for innovating the sport have to be efficiency. So, you know, for example, the Royals in the 70s using sprinters as pinch runners. And so really, with the rise in technology, you've effectively allowed baseball to be solved. In other words, you have so much information. And yet there'll be more information, but really we now know how to make the best way of getting runs, how to prevent runs. And yes, there's a bit of cat and mouse involved between hitters and pitchers, but a lot of the thought process from even the late 90s is now horrendously out there. Even the early 2000s is now bunk. You know, nobody is arguing that stolen bases are an efficient strategy, or for the merits of the sack bun, nor all that managers should trust their gut over the readily available statistics. You know the example, the classic example that you know the starter the third time through the order is less effective than a fresh reliever. You know, as it's a ninety degree, you know, g geometric entity, it really limits the tactical options available to managers. I mean, compare. There's been so much controversy over the increase in shifting, which was really now when basically people were able to look, find out where people where hitters were hitting the ball. It's as simple as that, and charting it, and then putting the fielders to match. So suddenly you've had a you know a precipitous drop in batting average and in balls in play. But that's the thing is really all you are doing in practical terms is moving. Field is a matter of feet. And if you compare that then to the soccer tactics... And the options available to managers... You have three subs... Sometimes even five subs. You can you know defend for 90 minutes... And score with the last kick of the game... And win 1-0. You can be dominated and still win the game. You can't really do that within baseball. You can't... You know, it really still comes down to... The best baseball teams... Are the ones that score the most runs... While conceding the fewest, you know in many ways, the biggest changes to baseball has really been sort of twin entities you've had on the one hand you've had the improved training of the players you know strength, speed, endurance, and in some cases sadly you know pharmacological, in other words, you know steroids, and you've then on the other side had statistical information, video information, iPads, you know, the And really what you now have is a situation where you have thirty teams, thirty managers and thirty front office, and are any of these franchises acting as an outlier in the way of a Marcelo Biazla in the Premier League or Jose Mourinho. Or really using a radically different different operating model to their competitors. You know, really, the defining question that's facing baseball is whether it needs structural reform, as cricket has done, or really whether it needs to continue on with its format reform. You know, rule changes. You know, 3D sports are constantly evolving, whereby, for me, I think 2D sports, and especially baseball, were always more vulnerable to the information revolution I mean if we th- <laughs> now there's no magic bullet that's going to silver magic bullet that is going to solve all of these problems and in many ways you know and I've, I've used this argument before when I've done other podcasts about baseball is that baseball as a sport is intrinsically tied to everyday America so in other words, while the NFL is much more popular in terms of you know, TV viewership, in terms of you know, attendance you know, on a per game basis, what you have is, is that American football and the NFL is able to mirror American society whereby I think baseball is far more it's far more reflective of everyday life and issues that face that people face on a daily hourly basis in other words when america sneezes baseball gets a cold so if you look at the you know there are people that will be very much arguing against you know big tech social media amazon because of the amount of information that they have and how that's borrowed into you know everyday life and how you can now you know a company will know virtually everything about you which is in many ways the same way that you know a baseball player now deals with that their club knows exactly how fast they run knows it you know every single last detail you know how effective they are at catching the ball all of that, and they can compare them with the you know the center fielder for the Royals can compare against the center fielder for the Astros. Whereby you know previously, if you were in a different league, you might as well have been on a, in a different continent. You can make a parallel between the decline of you know, the minor leagues, the situation where you've had effectively a corporate takeover of the minor leagues by Major League Baseball. You've had forty teams lose their affiliations you've had a complete top down reorganization of it much in the same way that you could say the decline of you know shopping centers decline of you know the high street your know, main street it is very sort of analogous but the problem is is that fans are lapping up the extra information you know, fantasy baseball the rise of that it the point is, is that as much in some ways as we rail against it, more people are watching, you know, major league baseball on their tablets than are necessarily going down the road to watch their minor league team. And yeah, really so you've had a situation you know, a sea change in almost a couple of generations whereby, you know, you would have almost it felt like a, a minor league baseball team in every town and now it's they are going to be sort of vast swathes of the United States which won't have any, you know affiliated team and uh, you know, you'll be relying on whether you know these new kind of unaffiliated minor leagues will survive it, it's an open question but in some ways what you have is think of the way how the traditional old school baseball maxims well why did they think like that and in some ways it, it's down to a part in part a lack of knowledge, it's a lack of credible information to disprove it. And in some ways, ergo, it really created a sport based on aesthetic visual judgments. In other words, hitting a single requires more athletic skill than to take a walk. In other words, both need, you know, you need a good eye, you need to be able to foul off pitches, but in the end, a walk is a passive. It's really making sure you don't strike out, and if the balls you know if you get four pitches outside the strike zone, you're down to first base. The thing is is that you end up at first base and you hit a single you end up at first, you end up in the exact same place, but it's much more different than to when you have a ninety mile an hour fastball on the corner and hitting it the other way and getting on base yeah you know, that's you could just see ah that's a skill that's fantastic, whereby you might have a question mark over the person taking take a walk. Will he be able to hit? And especially when you're dealing with an, an era where there were fewer strikeouts, and being struck out was, as an obvious display of failure was frowned upon. In some ways, yes, you can argue that, you know, theoretically, it was inefficient. But it was a beautiful spectacle. And really... What you have is is that you know speed was a quantifiable tool. If you could see someone sprint and turn a double into a triple, even if really theoretically speaking, if you're on second and you're on third, a, th- a single should score you anyway. The actual threat of being thrown out a third is, you know, l- less efficient than actually staying on second. But the point is, is that for you know, in a lower scoring game, getting on third was a huge deal. And the thing is also it was excitement and a lot of these old ball clubs were based on you know there was a quantifiable benefit in excitement because that meant attendance that meant money that meant the ability to you know buy better players or you know increase salary or generally get interest and be closer to winning you know there's an obvious benefit of a stolen base you're on second when you were on first you know rules bringing back the stolen base in the 60s you know whereby in the 40s and a little bit in the 50s where there was a higher scoring the stolen base wasn't as needed and really what you have is, is that a situation where front offices today win at all costs regardless of the entertainment value for them it is simply a you know zero sum game i win you lose there's no concept of the, the, the sport as a whole whether that benefits if you're playing you know, four hour you know four and a half hour games with ten pitching changes. You know the thing is is that old school baseball you had the hero starter you had the ace, the manager as king, the you know, the great man theory of history. You know the, the it was obvious to the public what the manager was doing, and the impact. You, know, you have Earl Weaver, you have Tommy Lasorda. You know, there was a quicker pace of game. It was more easier for the casual fan to understand and to engage. And this is the point, is that yes, while you can argue right now, if you took the worst current Major League skipper, and you put him up against 1980s you know, Tommy Lasorda, who would be a better manager? Who would have a better idea how to win ball games? undoubtedly, it would be the worst MLB skipper. He'd be able to work... You know, he'd have the statistical understanding, the education, and would probably run rings around Tommy Lasorda. But then, if you currently then flip that argument and then say, well, who has a more beneficial impact on the sport? You know, the best current Major League Baseball skipper or Tommy Lasorda? It's Tommy Lasorda. Tommy Lasorda got more people into baseball then i would imagine all 30 current major league managers put together you know if you take i mean for example take the tampa bay rays and they got to the world series this year and you know they lost to a fantastic dodgers team you know no one is doubting that and yet you had the manager kevin cash game 6 Blake Snell had, you know, his ace, had had a fantastic game, just given up a single, but other than that, had been utterly dominant. And yet he pulls him. Because, you know, the spreadsheet basically says once you go the third time through the lineup, things were likely to go wrong. But the problem is, he brought in Nick Anderson, who had been a fantastic, you know, fireman relief ace you know used him in the fourth fifth sixth whenever there was a moment of crisis you brought him in but by the end of the you know the world series he was gassed Yeah, he had given up runs in multiple appearances you know eventually he just there wasn't he had nothing else left to give he comes in immediately the game falls apart and yet really the the funny thing is is that in the end, instead of the Rays saying, "Okay, we're this much closer, let's you know double down and go for it this year," they've already traded Blake Snell. You know they haven't. You know they've you know, refused Charlie Morton's fifteen million dollar option. And it's how do you sell you know that to the casual fan? That as the Rays, you know, operating modus operandi. How do you sell that as? You, Okay, we've got to the World Series, but now we're going to trade away our best pitcher, our number two starter. And really, maybe in a few years' time, we are hoping that with all the talent that we've got, that we'll be in a stronger position. But really, they've lost two World Series. They lost in 2008 to the Phillies, and now they've lost in 2020 to the Dodgers. Well, are they better off... After the 2008 season and the 2020 season, I would imagine probably on the balance of play, I'd say the 2009 Rays probably look a bit stronger than the 2020 Rays. You know, it's this constant idea that there's, there's this kind of myth of onward progression that there's going to be a sunny day far into the future and it doesn't really seem to come. In reality, you've had a situation where they've cut costs, and the Tampa Bay Rays were already had a, a you know, v- minuscule payroll in comparison with the Yankees, in comparison with the Dodgers, the Red Sox. You know the the thing is, is that if you were going to trade, Kev, you know Blake Snell in Game Six, you could have made him throw two hundred pitches. You could have gone for it. What did you have to lose? In that aspect, is that in the end, you were so focused on, you know, the thing is that the Rays have defied expectations. And they, you know, theoretically, if you were going to go just on payroll, they should be nowhere near, you know, competing with the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Dodgers. But the thing is, both front offices in 2008 and 2020 were seen as groundbreaking. You know, there was a famous book written about the 2008, you know, Rays, how they managed to basically... You know, it was almost emotionally speaking like a, a sequel to Moneyball. You know they they do outthink teams. They do use their their processes in a way that has you know they've overachieved. But when is that day ever going to come when they're going to go for it? You know this is the second time they've had a great team, and neither time have they ever kicked on. In other words, it's almost as if. Once you get to the World Series, that's when you retrench on the off chance that you will go to another World Series. But again, you've had two World Series, and neither time have they come close to really winning. You know, in the end, you're really talking. You know, the thing is with the Rays yes, because of their stadium, they have crappy attendance, but they do have a large TV. You know, audience. They are you know well supported in that regard, but really, it almost feels like you know there'll be corporate cost cutting married with this front office excellence unless they either get a new stadium or they eventually move you know within you know Tampa Bay or whether they move to Montreal. And that's where maybe you'd have a situation where they would not just they'd actually really seriously go all in to win a World Series. So really <laughs> How can you roll back the influence of technology on hitters and front offices in sort of dictating the manage strategy to field managers? So let's say you were to outlaw, if you were to outlaw iPads, you know, in-game video, you know, because basically due to last season due to COVID, there you know you weren't able to have you know in-game video, so hitters weren't able to say, okay, he struck me out in the first inning with a splitter. Now, when I come up in the third or fourth inning, I'll be you know, able to, you know, wait on that pitch, and you know, some hitters really struggled. You know, classic example would be J.D. Martinez had his you know, absolute career worst season, and in in many ways said that part of the reason for that was because of the lack of video that he wasn't able to make adjustments in game. But if you were going to outlaw it, would that lead to? institutionalized cheating for example you know the astros trash can in other words would teens be sneaking in you know information via headpieces would you have you know apple you know would you have apple watches with there is would in other words you can't put it back into the can't put the genie back into the bottle the information is there and somehow someone will find a way of trying to transmit it and you then have just a cat and mouse game of will all teams cheat or would some teams cheat? It creates a whole level of sort of complications, and really, I suppose it asks several sort of questions. Does having all of this information make for a better viewing experience for the fan? It, you know, one of my favourite ones when looking at this was when they had sort of five star catches when they were basically able to say what's the percentage chance of people catching it and really the thing is is that yep you have a handful of you know five star catches in a season but the thing is is there such a thing as an ugly five star catch you know a great catch when you see it when someone has sprinted 25 meters died for it and made the catch and as much as when you're talking about idealism, the thing is, really, would the fans and media want to go back to the pre, you know, Winds Above Replacement, the pre-war world? You know, I'm, I, as a, when I first got into baseball, I loved Fire Joe Morgan. I loved the, the humour of it, and the intelligence of it. And there was so much bad writing, but in many ways, that bad writing wasn't aimed at the people making, doing Fire Joe Morgan, what it was, it was, it was casual fans. So that was really a bridge. So in other words, these baseball writers would even email that the, the, the creators of Fire Joe Morgan saying, yep, my editor told me to, to write this story and that was the best job I could do. But the thing is, if that was reaching 50,000 know, casual fans and making them you know feel a part of the game, was that the worst thing? Yes, of course, you know, people that know loads about the game and have a detailed understanding realise what they these writers were saying was, you know, not the most accurate, but there's, you know, I'm a very much a believer in a large tent baseball where the more fans you can get into the tent, the better, rather than having, let's say, some idea of an enlightened electorate that is 25 people all arguing over their spreadsheets. You know... And there's almost a sort of a philosophical point. Does measuring and ranking every action on a ball field make us lose the appreciation for just the, the aesthetic qualities of the athlete and the game itself? You know, really you know, the more information that has led to front office is effectively acting as a hive mind. And that has really only benefited the owners in driving down payroll. You know, it's effectively de facto collusion. You have middle class free agents being weighted out and it's driving down their salary and their length of contract. You know, it's creating almost in a way a two tier system where you've got in handfuls of clubs that are competing. So you'll have a situation, let's say, where you have your teams are always competitive. Dodgers, Yankees, Cardinals, your front line outfits. You know, you could probably say the Houston Astros, maybe the Red Sox, you know, teams that are there and thereabouts year after year after year. You know, you could probably even say the Twins, maybe. You know, the situation where you know the Dodgers have won, you know, almost like an Atlanta Braves esque, you know, run of just winning the the NL West every single year. It's pretty much a guarantee. And then you have this sort of Almost a second division set of clubs who are not really competing. They're in a rebuild and they're unwilling to, you know, spend to improve the team until their competitive window opens. And that window is open for X number of years. So you have the situation with the Astros and you have the situation with. Whereby for you know three or four years they were horrendous. You know they would lose a hundred plus games a year. You know, no one in the Houston area was watching, but they managed to get enough draft talent, enough younger players through, and then eventually their window opened and they won a World Series. Got to a World Series. You know, lost another World Series, and even you know this year when they finished under five hundred, still qualify for the playoffs, Still was you know reached the ALCS. Obviously, you have to caveat that with the scandals from the front office side and from the cheating and all the rest of it. But the problem is, is that there are teams that know that they can get better. So they know that, let's say, that there is a right fielder that will improve them by two to three wins. Now, the problem is, is that if you've won 77 games, moving to 80 games, and let's say the playoffs is 88 games, that's not going to make a huge difference. But you then suddenly create this issue where that person isn't getting a contract. Your team aren't as good, therefore less people are going to watch. And it, you know, for all of the success, let's say that you could say for the Astros, maybe for the Royals, there are plenty of rebuilds that don't go anywhere. If you look at the amount of years that the Mariners have been waiting to try and get back into, you know, the postseason. really i suppose the question that you have to ask yourself is has the information and front office age led to improvements in baseball from in terms of the pace of play in terms of the game i, I love baseball i will watch it religiously but it doesn't feel as exciting at times games can just drag you know you, three, four hours, it becomes, there's not much action. There's just, it it seems strikeout, strikeout, home run, home run, strikeout, 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 the odd ground ball. There's limited triples. There's, you know, you're getting, you know, all the relievers seem to, you know, be trying to do the same thing. They all seem to be basically somewhere between sort of 94 to 97, you know, maybe a handful that are pumping it at 100 miles an hour, there doesn't seem to be as much differentiation. The teams all seem to be playing in similar ways. I remember, you know, the Aussie Gear and White Sox that were, you know, were taking extra bases. You know, Scott Passenick was stealing bases, playing center field, and they seemed to be playing a different style than you know the Yankees of Joe Torre or the Francona Red Sox. You know, Mike Sociable was different, and yet now. This seems to all the managers seem to be very sort of similar, you know, they have similar backgrounds. They have, you know, you're getting the sense that really there used to be what seemed to be a profound difference between the front office and the dugout and now they basically seem to be one the same things you can move from the front from being a manager to playing a assistant gm or you can move from an assistant gm to being a manager there doesn't seem to be and everyone's talking in in a similar language there's you know managers are no longer characters they're not selling their team in other words they're almost you know sort of fungible. Mm. You know, at times it almost feels like the, the old, you know, sort of Futurama joke about the world president, whether it's, you know, Jack Johnson or John Jackson. They, they, they do, you know, managers seem to be very similar in that regards. And really what you've had is, is not only, you know, a less enjoyable game to watch, you've had an increasing labour strife. You have the potential for a lockout at the end of the season you know when the you know once the collective bargaining agreement expires you know there is going to be a reckoning there's been so much anger and you had the whole issue you know last summer over you know coming back and you know how long the season was going to be and all of the arguments and all of the bitterness that doesn't appear to have been assuaged in the off season once the season was completed last season and really there have been positives. You haven't had a World Series champion repeat this century. So the last team was the sort of the Jotori Yankee teams of the late nineties, early two thousands. Know, you so you've had twenty years where each year a different team wins the World Series. You know you've only really had the Giants and the, you know they yes they were a and yes they were a dynasty, but at the same time. You know, it was always, you know, they'd win when it was the year ended in a even-numbered year. And those years in between, and even some of the years where they qualified for the playoffs, they weren't, you know, they weren't the same as the Yankee dynasty, the Joe Torre one, where you'd win 95, 98, 100-plus games. This was far more, you know, sneaking into the playoffs and having a bit of a run. I mean, even the Red Sox, you know, who won it in 04, 07. 2013, 2018. There was plenty of years in between where they were mediocre, where they had to rebuild. But really, how much of that you know could be placed on the you know the vagaries of what you know Billy Bean referred to as the crapshoot postseason, and also the strains of playing an an extra month of games. It seems to me very much that this kind of information age and the dominance of the front office. There seemed to be so many more negatives. You had the, you know, you had the Astros cheating scandal. You had the sense of the front office that was very, was very cocksure. There was the 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 incident when a Astros front office personnel in the aftermath of a playoff victory was you know basically shouting at you know some female journalists about how happy they were that they signed you know their closer who had been who'd been on the trade block from the blue jays in the aftermath of a um, domestic violence incident Mm. you know there seems to be just as many baseball teams that don't seem to be going anywhere you've had as i mentioned you know the massive drought in you know seattle and you haven't been in the postseason since 2001 you the Angels haven't been able to, you know, have only made the postseason once with Mike Trout, who is, you know, one of the greatest baseball players of all time. If you cannot effectively get one of the best baseball players of all time into the playoffs, you know, his experience in the playoffs was three games when they was swept by the, you know, Kansas City Royals. You know, how hard is it to really? I mean, one of the major issues that baseball is facing, is the, you know, the loss of their stars being household names in other words you know America is you know perfectly aware of Patrick Mahomes Lamar Jackson Tom Brady yet really does Mike Trout does Fernando Tatis Jr. have the same name brand recognition that you would say that you know Mantle Mays and the Duke had in the 50s you know when they were playing center field you know in New York and Brooklyn it's it seems holistically that that despite all of the young talent that has just flowed into baseball, you know, where you've had a situation where teenagers such as you know Juan Soto have been just fantastic talents, doing you know unimaginable things, and yet you know even you know with all the you know there's a lot of young pitching coming through, there are question marks over whether you know the next generation of pitchers are going to be able to even make five innings. You know, at what point would some Are you getting to a point where you might have a situation where effectively every single baseball game will be a bullpen game where it's just nine guys all trying to get their three outs and go from there? Yeah, it may well be the most efficient use of resource, but you lose so much. You know, how, you know, at what point are you going to be able to have an emotional, you know, an emotional connection in the same way that I did when I first started you know, watching baseball with, you know, Pedro, with Kurt Schilling, with, you know, Josh Beckett in the 2007 playoffs. If you're not going to have that because starters won't be able to make six innings even, you know, in game seven of the World Series, mm. you know, the question comes down to whether the format changes, you know, the rule changes espoused by commissioner Manfred can really reform the sport and provide a better quality of game you know, still within the overall structure of the information age the front office age or whether really you need a you know a structural solution to this you know some you know i mean i've you know debated it within my own mind whether it's you know something like you know having two divisions having some form of promotional relegation you know that would actually you know enforce competitiveness so either you're fighting to stay in the league fighting to get into the playoffs to win the world series or you're trying to get promoted into that top division now obviously the first thing most baseball fans would say is that it's a complete non-starter from the owners the fans and the players perspective and I, i understand that but you know really a structural solution would have is the the concept is making each and every single game each and every single season a fully competitive event for all 30 teams you know that will stop tanking stop the concept of five year rebuilds you know the idea of trying to you know really reestablish the primacy of the manager you know so that it's not that the manager isn't really just a pr puppet someone that's just there for you to shout at when your closer blows you know, save in the ninth inning, when he doesn't really have any power. He's just simply, you know, a PR yeah, you know, not a PR, HR. He's just there to make sure everyone gets on with everyone, everyone gets on the bus and that you know the, the lineup card is filled out correctly. So that there's some form of hot stove before Christmas. So it's not a situation where each and every single team is waiting till early February, just before camp opens, before, you know, hoovering up the remaining free agents who have little or no choice. It's either you take this, you know, one year contract for two million dollars, or you don't play at all. You know, and whether that's a situation where you need to limit the amount of pitches, whether it's a situation you know, there are levers that need to be pulled and I get the feeling that it's gonna be far more likely to need to be structural to really, you know, get games under three hours. To really try and build baseball's capacity to bring back baseball's narrative and the gift that it has to be awe inspiring you know, to just see the, the wonderful things that baseball players can do triple stolen bases brilliant catches brilliant starting brilliant starts you know complete games seven innings you know two starters going at it into the eighth inning you know things that really everyone to fall in love with baseball that doesn't have to be lost to you know spreadsheet nomics thank you for listening